According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Hebrews chapter 1. We're still looking at the prologue in verses 1 through 4. And we've got a lot of uh, things to deal with, especially with uh, radiance and glory, uh, principles of Christology that apply in verse 3, that apply to God the Son and His role in revealing God the Father. Uh, Before we can do that, though, we still have to tie together two remaining, I think, loose ends from verse 2 with respect to His heirship, the heir of all things. And although I think I'll reserve some of that for verse 4. Uh, you have the language of heirship in verse 2 because he is the heir of all things, but also in verse 4 we're told he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And uh, so the concept comes up twice in these four verses uh, with, the, with him being called the heir and then the inheritance and the inheritance of a name that no angel was entitled to. But God the Son was entitled to, specifically Jesus Christ was entitled to in His victory after First Advent. And we'll deal with that as we, uh, as we reach verse 4. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the ages, or the world, as we bring it into the English. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you thankful, thankful for this grace provision. And who are we? None of us deserve to be here. None of us are entitled to know anything. of of your plan, of your thinking, of your will, of your word. And yet, Father, you have welcomed us, welcomed us into your family, welcomed us into your very heart, into your thinking, the innermost part of your being, Father, as you shape the innermost part of our being. And in these things, Father, we are not worthy, and yet by your grace, you extend to us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So Father, today we're delighted to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We're delighted, Father, to focus upon your Son. He is the celebrity of the universe. Everything was made in Him. Everything was made through Him. Everything was made for Him. And I pray that we would appreciate this and and learn this and start living this as a very vivid reality in all that we do. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, dealing with these aspects, I'm just going to skip ahead. We dealt with uh, this slide last week, the five P's that started off, they jump out at you off the page, polymeros, kai, polytropos, palai, uh, tois, patrasen, entois, prophetis, and all those P's in verse 1, they just come out at you in the way that they do, in the multiplicity of messages giving way to the simplicity, the singularity of Christ. There was a multiplicity of messages. You know, count all of the prophets in the Old Testament, all of the judges, all of the sacrifices, the animals, the the furniture, the the, the robes. I mean, everything in the Old Testament was pointing to Christ. And then here comes Christ, right? And the singularity of Christ, although He spoke, He spoke, all right? Having spoken in all those various ways, 
he speaks, then the keynote address is his son. And Jesus Christ is the greatest revelation ever. So God gave all kinds of words in all kinds of ways, but one word remained ungiven, waiting to become flesh and dwell among us. And that's the impact of this. I think the prologue from Hebrews 1, the prologue of Hebrews shapes the Gospel of John. That the, the, the prologue of this, uh, uh, the, how, how he spoke, now he speaks, it, uh, the Apostle John addresses that in John 1. That the, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. And how the Word was the Creator. Through Him was all things. Apart from Him not one thing came to be of all that has come to be. God the Son was the Creator. Not just as God the Son, but as the God-man. Jesus Christ, the God-man, was the Creator of everything. And, uh, and so we have the prologue to Hebrews, we have the introduction to John, we have Colossians 1, we have so many deep things that, uh, that address this. I hope uh, we have time to, to chew on it and, and review everything God gave us last week and keep, keep going through those things, especially the Proverbs 8 material. That Proverbs 8 material will really uh, connect well with uh, Hebrews and with John and with Colossians chapter 1 many parts and many ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us in a son, in a huios, all right? And I love the, the huios terminology of the son, right? God relates to us as a father to sons, and he has revealed himself in a son, and that's, that's huge. No other, no other worldview has that. Islam doesn't have that. The idea that, uh, in fact, Islam flat out denies it. The Quran says God doesn't beget anything, right? The, the Quran says that Allah has no son, so the next time someone tells you we all worship the same God, don't let them get away with that. Because the Quran says Allah doesn't have a son. All right? But the Bible says God has a son. And His son gave His life for us on the cross. And so Huios uh, used 24 times in the book of Hebrews. We're going to have sonship again and again and again and again. And the blessings of sonship that come with an inheritance. Moses was faithful as a servant. Jesus was faithful as a son. And between the servant and the son, who's the, who's the heir? Okay, It's not the servant, it's the son that's an heir. Which, by the way, we'll also get into in detailing the angels. Angels are not heirs. The angels, to which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand? Angels were not prepared for the world to come. The world to come is designated for those, for us, those who will inherit salvation. In fact, angels are servants. We're told that angels are servants, and as it says in the end of chapter 1, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Okay? So they're not sons, they're not, in, they're not heirs, even as we are. All right, and we get to verse 2 then, the last part of this. He spoke and he spoke uh, in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the Ionos, the ages. And I know it's translated world, and we're going to talk about that. Why is it translated world? They're not, you know, why is it that these translators keep getting it wrong all the time? Are they a bunch of morons? And, and why is it that, that Pastor Bob is so smart he can fix all their problems? Okay? Not like that. All right? Not like that at all. Um, world is an acceptable translation, but there's a nuance to it that has to, has to get across. And I'm going to try to do that here this morning. All right. Looked at this last week as well. This is the, the slide we spent most of our time with, centering on Proverbs 8. Uh, God the Son is the Father's uniquely begotten and beloved Son. He is uniquely begotten and uniquely beloved. 
And uh, today I have begotten thee from Psalm 2-7 is a, is a powerful concept and it comes back again and again in the book of Hebrews. Today I have begotten thee. And that, uh, that blessing of the Father to the Son, that, of begetting the Son, is, uh, I think it's vital to, to consider. So we spent most of last week in Proverbs chapter 8, the text that details when the Son was begotten, when His humanity was birthed. Not the body. The body was birthed by a virgin in the, in the manger of Bethlehem. But when was the humanity birthed? When was His soul spirit birthed uh, with the human spirit that was attached to the God the Son? And when did He become hypostatic union? That's huge, all right? That God the Son is the God-man. The Father's not God-man. Holy Spirit's not God-man. Okay? I want to be clear on this because if you walk out of here confused, you'll turn into a Jehovah's Witness or something. <laughs> all right? Don't do that. Okay? God the Son was never created. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all of Trinity has always been, has always been God, has had eternal fellowship one with another as God forever. Okay? But what's not eternal is the humanity of Jesus Christ. When was His humanity begotten? Okay? And this was our message last week. So if you missed it, I, I, man, I urge you, go get that MP3. And even if you didn't miss it, go get that MP3. And listen to it again and again. All right. And we did more teaching in, in Proverbs in, in chapter 8. Spent hours on this. I think eight hours total on Wednesday morning uh, detailing this from Proverbs 8. The, um, because God the Father birthed a human nature. And He birthed a human nature. And as He birthed it, when the Father birthed it, He invested it onto God the Son. And this is the beginning of the hypostatic union. And so the, the, only, the only controversy, none of this is controversial other than the fact that most people traditionally for 2,000 years have assigned that at the Bethlehem manger and have said, well, he's the God-man, but he became man when he was birthed through the, the virgin you know, in, the, in the manger. Okay? And Proverbs 8 says otherwise. And because Proverbs 8 says otherwise, I teach otherwise, all right? that he did not require a body to receive a human nature from his father. That uh, actually when, he, when, he, when it says a body thou hast prepared for me, that text by itself tells you that he must pre-exist his body. Okay? Now don't, don't go all Buddhist on me or anything because none of us get that. Okay? That's where we're all pre-existent souls that drift into a body at our birth and, and that's garbage. Okay? The Bible only describes one being ever who preceded his, his physical birth. And the only being who ever preceded his physical birth is Jesus Christ. So you and me and any other human being, we did not exist before our parents procreated. And our parents procreated, and we were procreated, and then body, soul, and dead human spirit uh, came into this, into this physical universe that way. Right? All right. So... Theologically, if you want more on that, we can. It's called traducianism, and we've got some other theological concepts that go into that, but uh, we'll let that go. Jesus is the only one. And when he was talking to the Pharisees, he said, before Abraham was born, I am, right? He pre-existed his first advent incarnation. And so as such, did he pre-exist his first advent incarnation as God alone, or might he have been the God-man already? Might he have already received a human nature? before he received a human body. And that's what Proverbs 8 proves. And I think Colossians 1.15 proves. And I think that Hebrews 1 proves. I think that John 1 proves. 
In the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh. The Word didn't become human. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Because the Word was already human. He was birthed at that alpha moment of time when, when uh, the plan of God went into effect. And so a lot of this, He is literally the firstborn of all creation. And uh, not, not just as a colloquialism, not just as a figure of speech. He didn't just become the, the firstborn because He was so great. He was literally, chronologically, the firstborn of all creation in uh, Colossians 1.15. All right, more on that last week. I'm tempted to reteach the whole thing today, but we won't. <laughs> we'll let that go. Um, also, he's the builder. We saw that in Proverbs 8. We, saw, we see that in Psalm 33. We see it in John 1.3, Colossians 1. He's the builder of all things, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. So... Everything that's not eternal, which is, you know, God's the only thing that's eternal, and everything that was created, remember his humanity was birthed, not created, everything that was created was created by the God-man, was created by God the Son, Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate, pre-flesh glory. And so he faithfully executed the Father's plan as the creator of all things visible. He also created the invisible stuff, the angels. Every angel is a created being. It was just created in the invisible realm, created in the dimension of spirit, of a spiritual substance as opposed to our physical substance. Now, he created all things, but verse 2 is bigger than that. Through him also he made, fashioned, shaped, designed, made the ages. And this is a different word for world, okay? We're not talking about real estate. We're not talking about geography. We're not talking about planet. We're talking about the ages, not only the world, but the history of the world, the scope of things from Alpha to Omega and how they unfold. And uh, we want to spend some time today dealing with that. Yes, Jesus created the cosmos world, but this word isn't cosmos. Normally cosmos is the word we expect. Cosmos, that's the word for world. comes to us even in English. It comes, filters through Latin, turns in, the K becomes a C, but we get the cosmos in English. And then a bunch of God-hating atheists will put scientific shows on the Discovery Channel and call it cosmos and things there. All right? But cosmos uh, speaks of the world, but it speaks of the world as an ordered thing. It speaks to the order of the world. When you think cosmos, don't think uh, universe, we got words for that, or galaxies or stars or the planet. God created the heavens and the earth, And together, that constitutes the cosmos. The cosmos is the world, okay? And uh, it speaks of the world in its arrangement. Right now, it's a fallen world. Right now, it's a fallen world because of Satan's fall and because of Adam's fall. It's doubly fallen. And this fallen cosmos is a terrible thing. Strong's Concordance is number 2899 for cosmos. Has 185 uses in the New Testament. God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only begotten son. All right. Well, yes, Jesus is the creator of that world. He's also the creator of the Ion world, and that is the world ages. The world ages. So Ion, A-I-O-N, Ion, plural of Ion is Ionas, ages. Strong's number is 165. And it also has over 100 uses. It has 122 uses in the New Testament. 
most of which are temporal. That is, most times that this word is used, it's used in a time context, in a context that demands that we, we handle the word temporally in, in, a, in a time kind of way. So we talk about ages in a time sense. But the, it can also be used of ages in a spatial sense. And that's not weird. We do the same thing in English. Every language does, or most languages I can think of do. Okay? Think of an age, not just as a passing of time, but as a particular significance for the specific conditional circumstances being referenced. All right? And we can illustrate this in a lot of different ways. Uh, maybe the earthly ways will help, uh, and then maybe if I confuse things, then we'll just go to the Bible verses <laughs> and explain it that way. But but we can we can talk about this, right? Because we use the same thing. We talk about uh, a bygone age, right? Or a bygone era, see? And that was a, a different age back then. And when we talk about it, really, it was a different world back then, see? We get a lot of these memories now when, when a loved one passes, right? Or someone... You know, was born in the 1930s. Uh, he grew up in a different age. It was almost a different world. Okay, it wasn't a different planet. It was still planet Earth, but it was a different world back then compared to what we have today. We we have different idioms. The age of sail. I love reading the age of sail. Right? You can read Horatio Hornblower adventures. Or you can read whatever. And that age of or the age of discovery, or the age of of whatever. We've got. How about the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, things like that? We use the word age, and sometimes it's more than just the time span. Sometimes it talks about what are the specific conditions in the world at that time. And then our word becomes more of a spatial context than a temporal context. And if it's used spatially in terms of space rather than time, then word is not a world is a perfectly valid translation. It comes into English that way, and, and there's nothing wrong with that because we use world that way in, uh, in many ways. And so, so many of the verses that we know about, we have the word for world, and we just think it's cosmos until we learn that it's ion, and then we stop and we, we digest it a second time. And we go, oh, wait a minute, that's not cosmos, that's ion. Let me think about that some, okay? And so in Matthew 13, 22, we have it, in terms of the parable of the sower. And everybody knows this parable. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke, but Matthew and Mark use the ion terminology here. You know, the, the sower went out to sow. And, uh, you know, some by the road, some in the rocky soil, some in the... We know the story, do we not? And then here comes the explanation. Jesus says... Uh, Matthew 13, 18, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Notice, connect that to what we're dealing with last hour. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. How many fly-by-night Christians make a profession of faith, but it's not real? And then here comes the angelic conflict, and they got no depth. And uh, it's interesting. And then uh, the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, 
This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world. Now, that's not cosmos there. It's the worry of the ion, the worthy, the, the worry of the age. And uh, described there, the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And uh, so it's, it's kind of interesting. The same cosmos as it's always been, it's the same cosmos since it fell in Adam. But from age to age, there are new worries that develop. They didn't worry about back then that we're worried about now. Every age, every generation has fresh worries <laughs> that Satan can use to choke out our fruitfulness. And so uh, that's, the, that's the reference there. Mark 4 is a parallel text. We don't have to turn to that. How about Romans 12? Weren't we just there last hour? Yep, we were. So why turn to it? You should have it memorized. I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. None of us brought any goats this morning, thank you. No, no sheep, no goats, no rams. We're not butchering any animals. We're not going to pour blood all over the carpet. Okay, we don't even have an altar anyway. Uh, next week, we're going to grill some burgers. That's going to be fun. Um, but for animal ritual, we don't do that. All of the Old Testament sacrifices were dead sacrifices except the scapegoat. They got to walk away and be led off. Okay? Every other sacrifice died. Now, all that's done in Jesus. Jesus is the once and for all conclusion He's the end of the law for all who believe. And now, because he died and lives again, we get, to, we get to bring our sacrifices, that is us, the living sacrifices, all day, every day. That's our worship. You and I get to serve as living sacrifices and uh, present our bodies as living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You conduct your life all day, every day for the glory of Jesus Christ, and you're worshiping God. Daily life becomes our worship and our priesthood. And do not be conformed to this I own. That's the use of world that we assume is cosmos until we look deeper and realize, oh, that's not cosmos there. And just as every fresh age has brand new worries, every fresh age has brand new conformity. And uh, I tell you, our generation is conforming to things that even unbelievers of past generations would have never conformed to. Even unbelievers two generations ago would cringe at the things we're accepting today as normal. All right? Conformity to this age, as it says. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, I don't mind the translation world, but I think age conveys it better. If you want to make, call it a world age, fine. Call it a world age and render it across. Or maybe just don't translate it. Just leave it as ion. Do not be conformed to this ion, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You realize you and I operate in a cosmos and we operate in an ion. And uh, we, we need to have our eyes open to that. We cannot be ignorant of his devices. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. Satan is called the god of this Ion. He's not called the god of this cosmos. He's the god of this Ion. 
Something to be said about the church age being the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. The church age being the pinnacle up till now of the difficulties believers have had under angelic conflict testing. 2 Corinthians 4.3 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Thanks God that's not us. We are not perishing ones. Remember? God so loved the cosmos that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him stops being a perishing one. Okay, Should not perish, but have everlasting life. We have that now, today, right now. We are not perishing ones. But we're surrounded by perishing ones all over this world. There are perishing ones all throughout this cosmos and all throughout this ion. And it goes on to say, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this ion has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. There's a whole lot of doctrine there I could preach, by the way. I can prove that, uh, you know, Calvinists teach inability to believe. Satan doesn't believe that. That's why he blinds their eyes. Okay? Because an unbeliever is able to see the light of the gospel. If you're in darkness and the light starts shining, what's the first thing you see? Oh, the light started shining. And then that light starts to show you other things. But first thing you see is you're not in darkness anymore. Oh, there's a light. Okay? The unbeliever can see that light. Satan doesn't want you to look at that light, so he blinds your eyes. He's called the God of this Ion. Now it's interesting to me, I believe, of course, Satan has always had tremendous permissive will and freedom in the age of the Gentiles, in the age of Israel. He did an awful lot of things against the Jewish people. Satan had a lot of leeway. Satan was able to to whisper things into David's ear and, and lead King David into some sin. And Satan has had a lot of freedom all along. But in the body of Christ, in the church age, I think it's ramped up even more. Jesus told his disciples, he said, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. He said, but I prayed for you. Isn't that beautiful? Implication being permission was granted. Satan asked for permission and he got it. This church age is the age of satanic sifting. And you and I deal with it because God's given us armor and he's given us the New Testament. He's given us all the doctrine we need to stand firm. So uh, it's, it's no wonder then that now, presently, the, the liar has reached a level of something he's been trying for all along. He said, I will be like the Most High God. And this is the closest he's ever gotten. In the permissive will of God, he's allowed to be called the God of this Ion. He is the God of this age. And so we have the God of this age. I believe that's why the church age is called this present evil age in Colossians 1, in Galatians 1, 4. How about 1 Timothy 6, 17? Instruct those who are rich in this age world who are rich in this age it's an ion there not a cosmos and so you spot that and it gives you things to think about you got to rethink it and say well wait a minute what's the implication of that being ion instead of cosmos instruct those who are rich which by the way is all of us (laughs) everybody in this room is rich in this age and um, the blessings that we have. First Timothy six seventeen. Instruct those who are rich in this present ion, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, 
but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. You know, riches are uncertain and you may have them in this age, but what about the next? And, uh, you know, forget about age. You might have them in this year. What about the next? Or this day? What about the next? What happens tomorrow? Time is so fleeting. Instruct them to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. You know, you talk about long-term planning, different investment uh, advisors and financial advisors, and they want, you know, long-term planning, this and that. And anything they're talking about long-term, if it's less than 10,000 years, that's not long-term to me, okay? Because I sing a hymn that says, and we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, okay? That's, to me, long-term planning is laying up treasure in heaven, the eternal investments of what we're doing, Okay? But those who are rich in this age as opposed to this cosmos, it's not cosmos there in 1 Timothy 6, 7, 17, it's ion, rich in this age. And uh, like I say, in many respects, we are richer than any, we have every advantage. To be a church age believer, are you kidding me? With a canon of scripture? What age has had that? What age has had the complete canon of scripture, the mind of Christ? We have the mind of Christ. We're the richest beings ever at least in the unfolding of time up till now something to think about second timothy 4 10 another use of another trans it's a, it's a translation of world but it's not cosmos second timothy 4 9 make every effort to come to me soon for demas having loved this present i own has deserted me and gone to thessalonica Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. And in a lot of ways, it makes sense that it's Ion there instead of Cosmos. He loved this present Cosmos. And so, uh, you know, Rome is in the Cosmos and Thessalonica is in the Cosmos. I mean, every locality is in the Cosmos. So if you're going to flee, what's he fleeing and where's he fleeing to? And the idea of loving this age, what is it about Thessalonica that makes it attractive to somebody that loves this age? The age that they lived in. Interesting concept there. He didn't love the cosmos, but he loved the Ion, is what it says. So he's deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And we all face that. We face the, the test. Jesus challenged his disciples, do you love me more than these? Right? You and I got to decide that. We got to decide, do we, love, do we love Jesus? What are we doing? Or do we love this age? Do we love this cosmos? Do we love this ion? What do we love? Finally then, uh, the three uses in Hebrews, I think would all speak to this. Hebrews 1, 2, we've already read. He is the creator of all these ages. You know, these ages aren't just happening on their own. They're not just happening on their own and out of God's control, Okay. God's not looking down and shaking his head thinking, oh wow, look what they've gone and done. What am I going to do now, right? He's not watching the unfolding of these ages surprised like we are, never dreaming that it could have gotten this bad, right? That's us. God foreknew all of this before the foundation of the world. Not only did he foreknow all this, he decreed all this. Jesus Christ has been shaping all of this. We are where we are now by the craftsmanship of Jesus Christ. That's why I don't grumble over things that people want to grumble about. Some folks don't like the fact that we've got Catholics and Lutherans and Baptists and 
Bible church people and, I mean, all these denominations and all these things. And they said, it's a terrible thing. There should only be one. Jesus didn't think so. If Jesus wanted only one, we'd have had only one. But we've got hundreds now, thousands. Why? Because Jesus can be omnipresent and Satan can't, I, I think. I think God's genius. And so if, if Satan wants to pervert doctrine, he doesn't have to just pervert one church. There's thousands of them out there now that he's got to start sending minions and agents and lackeys into. And Satan can't be everywhere at once, but Jesus is. He's inside each one of us. And to me, it's a beautiful thing. I love that. So these ages unfold. Hebrews 1, 2, through whom also he made the ages. So from the angels to humanity to church. I prepped this so I could put it up there. Might as well put it up there. Um, This is the the fold-out table that's in the back of our uh, plan of God reader. And there's a huge poster on it back there in the hallway, back by the nursery. Um, Stare at it, memorize it, learn it. Uh, Recognize that, you know, where we are in the church and what brought us here and where we're going after the church goes and understand from Alpha to Omega, Jesus Christ is the craftsman executing the Father's plan. The Father's the architect that designed it. Jesus is the builder that's putting it into effect. From the creative ages of Alpha on to the age of the ages in in Omega. And first of all, angels were here. Angels had a stewardship before any humans were around. And they blew it. They rebelled. A third of the angels followed Satan in his revolt and uh, destroyed the earth. Somebody asked me, do I think it's possible that the scorched earth policy was Satan's anger at uh, the God-man? Because the God-man designed the earth for humanity. He He did not design the earth for angelity. And so the world became formless and void. What was the tohu wabohu destruction? Was, did, did God assign that in judicial fiat or did Satan affect that in his scorched earth warfare against God? I've never thought of that before. I said, thank you. You gave me something to chew on. I'll have to, <laughs> have to give that some prayer. Search some scriptures and see. But the, the, the world that was, we have the world that was, the world that is, and the world that is coming. And God did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But the world that was, that was the angelic earth. And then, of course, six days of recreation, and God rested on the seventh day, and everything is now restored for humanity. And on day six, he shapes Adam out of the dust. We have the present world. And in the present world, we've had stewardships. That's what I have going across there in blue and red and purple. The uh, stewardship of man or Gentiles, the stewardship of Israel, right? The stewardship of the church. These are the various stewardships in the unfolding plan of God. And, um, and by the way, he's not done with Israel. You see that little strip that goes across the top of the church there? Uh, Israel's currently on hold. They're not finished. They can't be finished. They've got an eternal destiny. They can't, Israel cannot be finished. It's just presently they're in a the wilderness. Presently they're on hold until the church is complete. That's why the diagram was drawn that way. Anyway, it's good to think your way through this. Can you think your way through the different ages within the dispensations? So, uh, several, of the, I mean, the, the, several of these dispensations had multiple ages within them. From innocence to conscience to human government, it was still a Gentile stewardship. Just had different conditions, specific conditions, particular to those ages, the age of innocence, 
We're not in the age of innocence anymore. I noticed that too. You left your goats at home and you got dressed before you came. (laughs) We're not all naked in the age of innocence. All right? And there's different ages in the different stewardships. Israel had several ages. They had an age of promise. They had an age of law. When Jesus Christ walked the earth, that's the age of incarnation because something greater than the law was there. They have an upcoming, they've got an age of tribulation, they've got an age of kingdom, they've got a millennial kingdom age that's still a part of Israel's stewardship in the millennial age to come. And then the world to come, new heavens and new earth. That's what we're looking forward to. We're not looking forward to the millennium. Are you looking forward to the millennium? Eh, not really. I mean, yeah, there'll be some cool things to see there, but it's only a thousand years, okay? Don't get, don't get all wrapped up about it. Because by then we'll be, we'll be glorified eternal to us. That's just a day. It's the day of the Lord, okay? We're looking for new heavens and new earth. According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. That's why we're here. We're looking for the world to come. We're looking for the fullness of time. We're looking for the stewardship of Christ Himself, His personal stewardship that He executes to the glory of God the Father. That's what we're looking forward to. So think your way through these things and then appreciate it was the God-man that designed them all, the God-man that built them all, the God-man that shaped them all. Okay? And then start to consider how unique we are. If... uh, and I love this. Pastor Cliff's going through Genesis right now, and, and, and Lost Pines is going through, and I want to teach Genesis someday. But you go through that day by day account, and God is so smart about what He does. Okay, He creates the heavens, and then He populates them with a heavenly host. He separates the waters, right? The waters below from the waters above. And as soon as we have waters, and then He separates the seas from the land. And as soon as we have waters, and then He populates, the, He puts fish in there. Okay. He doesn't create fish first and then go, oops, I've got to have some oceans here to put them in. Right? doesn't create the land animals and go, oops, I forgot about the earth. Everything is done in an exact order. And every single time, every single time, from the angels to man to the birds to the fish to the creepy crawly things, every, he creates the, the realm, okay, the, or the habitat, the, the realm, and then he populates the realm. We're familiar with that, right? Does that make sense? Okay. But consider now, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth. There is a realm that has not yet come into existence, but for the first time ever, he's pre-populating it. You and I are a new creation in Christ. And that just pops a a light, light bulb or something. Wait a minute. He is now pre-populating a realm that has not yet come about. And he's pre-populating it with the bride of Christ. He's pre-populating it with us. See, and I think that's vital. I think that is a marvelous tandem. I think we are a bride suited to his son because he himself preceded his You see what I'm saying? In his pre-existence and true humanity, he himself preceded the kingdom that he was being prepared for. So too do we precede the kingdom we're being suited for. And so in Christ, the minute you got saved, that moment you trusted in Christ for eternal life, you became a new creation in Christ. And we now are 
really fish out of water, okay? Literally, we're aliens and strangers. We are in the world, but we are no longer of the world. That's cosmos, by the way. We are in the cosmos, but no longer of the cosmos. And uh, he is pre-populating this world to come. He did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we're speaking, but he subjected it to man. And what is man? That you should regard him, or son of man, that you should care for him. Uh, All of these big ideas here, stay tuned, because this is all of chapter 1. Chapter 1 of Hebrews plunges into every last one of these little details. So think your way through from Alpha to Omega, and I think you'll do real well. So when ages are used in a more spatial sense rather than the usual temporal sense, it conveys a particular significance for the specific conditional circumstances being referenced. So we're talking about the world, but specifically we're talking about that age and the angelic conflict that is being manifest in that age at that time. So as such, they must be studied in their connection to the dispensations. The sequence of stewardships from Alpha to Omega. You ever study dispensations? You realize they all end in failure? Okay? There has not been a faithful steward yet. And don't think the church will be the first. At the rapture of the church, we're going to have, is anyone going to notice we're gone? What's our global impact going to be when the last remaining remnant gets raptured out of here? Because the church is so flaming apostate anyway. Okay? And I hope it does happen on a Saturday night because I believe there's going to be churches packed out Sunday morning the morning after the rapture. Packed out with a bunch of unregenerate, phony churchy people. Okay? Every stewardship has ended in failure. From Adam and Eve to Noah to the Tower of Babel to uh, promise, law, that crucified the Christ. Church age, the apostasy of the end times, um, uh, tribulation, millennium. Millennium ends in failure. You get a Gog-Magog revolt that surrounds Jerusalem at the end of the millennium. Every stewardship has featured a failure and a judgment until we get to Christ. In the the fullness of time, we get a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. He faithfully executes the Father's plan, and then He delivers the kingdom up to the Father that God may be all in all. And it's the first stewardship ever that ends in victory. And that's that's a glory to think about too. All right. Uh, Let me give you some, uh, some details then. The world that was in 2 Peter 3, verse 5 and verse 6, also known as the angelic world. By the way, it's common to teach this as if Peter was referencing Noah's flood. I think it's bigger than that. In 2 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6. Um... The mockers that come with their mocking, following after their own godly lust, saying, where is the promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And so we have a context here that specifies creation. And when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the Word of God, that is by Jesus Christ, the Word, Hebrews 1, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. We're nowhere near Noah at this point when we're talking, we're talking the original angelic creation, the original earth for the angelic world. 
through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Because of the word flood there, it's often connected to, uh, to Noah's flood. Okay? And also uh, chapter 2, we talk about the days of Noah, and then there's... Um, but I don't think this chapter is talking about Noah. Through, so uh, this is the Tohu Wabohu judgment. Flooded it with water and then froze it over and consolidated waters above with waters below into one massive ball of darkness, ball of frozen water. But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of godly men. And that's why at the end of the millennium we have the destruction of the heavens and the earth by fire. So understand the world that was, also known as the angelic world, the little clues that we get in the Bible. You know, we don't have an angelic Bible, but there are glimpses in our human Bible in the Hebrew Scriptures, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Jeremiah 4. We have glimpses about the rulers of this world. And the only reference we have in the New Testament to the rulers of this world, they're invisible. Why are they invisible now? They weren't invisible then. What was their judgment? What now has put them into the capacity where they are now? Okay. Anyway, these are, these are some fun things to think about as well. This, this gets into some, into some realms, and I'm not going to give you a comprehensive development, but we can look at them. Isaiah 14, if you've never been exposed to these, to me it's sad. It used to be more common... Uh, it was taught this way in the Schofield Reference Bible going back to 1907. And uh, Schaefer taught it. It was in his systematic theology in the 30s and 40s. And then doctrinal pastors were teaching this in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, it's sad to me, though, that starting in the 1990s, um, doctrinal men have started to abandon it. And that breaks my heart. All right. They no longer see angels in, in Isaiah 14. They no longer see angels in Ezekiel 28. They no longer see angels making uh, Nephilim babies with human women in Genesis chapter 6. They're abandoning angels every chance they get to go to a non-angelic, strictly human-centered scripture. And the minute they do that, I think they lose the context that explains all of scripture. The angelic conflict is the context for why we have what we have. All right. So Isaiah 14, verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven. Adam and Eve fell and they got booted out of the Garden of Eden. They didn't fall from heaven. Satan fell from heaven. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. These are proper names. Okay? In the Hebrew, it's Halel ben Shachar. And that's what I call him. In the Latin Vulgate, it's Lucifer. Okay, and because of the Latin Vulgate, um, for a thousand years, we end up calling him Lucifer. Yeah, but there it is. All right. O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. When did he do that? You know, the angels on the angelic earth were organized into nations. You, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. These are the five I wills. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. Satan lusted after a throne he was not entitled to. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand? Okay, That's not just a rhetorical, hypothetical question in Hebrews 1. 
That is a specific rebuke of Satan himself. To which of the angels did he ever say? Oh, he wanted it. I will sit on the Mount of the Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Those are his five I wills, and he's 0 for 5. Okay? Terrible batting average. (laughs) God, of course, is 100%. He bats 1,000. Everything he says he's going to do, he's going to do. And he does. Satan has five I wills. He's 0 for 5. Always will be. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to shell. I love this. God answers Satan's I will language with you will language. (laughs) And God says, let me tell you what you will do. You will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. There is a fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And uh, a rousing party when he arrives. The welcome uh, committee. They will gaze at you They will ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world a bohu wilderness and overthrew its cities? Who did not allow his prisoners to go home? What happens? I mean, we know what we get this. A a losing, a losing uh, uh, nation that doesn't want their prisoners to be released or to go home, what do they do? Why did, why did Hitler have Bonhoeffer executed before, he could be, before his camp could be uh, rescued? Because okay? the Allies were sweeping across and they were rescuing, they were liberating camp after camp and it was vital for, and there was such hatred. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer gets executed before he could be rescued. Satan does not allow his prisoners to go home. Of all the warfare on the angelic earth, this is, uh, this is interesting to me. Angels used to be mortal. Angels used to be physical beings. Okay? We think of them now. Here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's the thing. We think of them now as, as the way they are now and just assume that they've always been that way. Okay? Don't assume that. Uh, we're, they're in their angelity future. We're still in our humanity present. So um, these things here. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you've been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be uh, united with them in burial because you have ruined your country. You know, when you think about being united in burial, every human is buried with the hope of resurrection, that is, believers. And even unbelievers are buried with a resurrection of judgment. Not so with the fallen angels. All right. Anyway, there's some other things here. I like, oh, I, some of my favorite verses precede verse 12 too. Uh, you have been brought down to shale in verse 11. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. Oh, some fun language there. Anyway, this is, uh, this is the fall of Satan on the angelic earth. This is the warfare that precedes humanity. This is what God is doing now in humanity, demonstrating through a weaker creature demonstrating the glories of grace that the mighty creatures rejected, could not accept. Satan is all about raising up, raising up, raising up, and Jesus emptied himself. Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. Isn't that beautiful? Again, we're back to Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 2. It's the point of this whole book. 
to the angelic world. We get over to Ezekiel 28 and get another glimpse of the angelic world. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 19. We have a ruler of Tyre in the earlier verses, followed by the king of Tyre in verse 12. And so we have a lament against the leader of Tyre in verses 2 through 10. And then again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him. And so we have two messages in this chapter. The first message is to a human being. We know by name because of history. But in verses 11 and following, we have a non-human being who's really the power behind the throne. He's really the true king. Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection. You used to be perfect. You used to be perfect. And then you fell. Okay? That's backwards. You and I used to be fallen. We were born dead. And then he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We are made righteous and we are being perfected. This is the other way around. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, that narrows it down. If we're talking to a human being, there's only two eligible recipients of this message. And uh, Adam and Eve have both been long dead, long before Ezekiel ever got written. Okay? We're not talking to the human being here. But somebody that was in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond... This is interesting. You know, you ever watch the Discovery Channel or National Geographic? You know, there's lots of amazing things out there. There's birds with feathers and there's fish with scales. There's creatures. There's armadillos with, you know, they're usually dead on the side of the road. But there's there's (laughs) different animals that have different coverings. Some have hides, some have fur, some have feathers. This creature has uh, ruby, topaz diamond i wonder what the hunting season is for that i mean yeah this is the barrel onyx jasper lapis lazuli the turquoise the emerald the gold the workmanship of your settings and sockets what kind of animal is that all these things were in you on the day you were created ah it's a created being it's not a zoological animal it wasn't birthed it was created On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the Messiah cherub. He's called a cherub. You know what? We know what cherubs are. Cherubim, seraphim, we know all about angels. What do you think this thing is? It's an angel. It's a cherub. The highest of all the ranked angels. And not only that, this one's called the Christ angel. The Messiah angel. The anointed cherub. The only angel to be given Messiah terminology in the Hebrew Old Testament. You are the Mashiach Cherub who covers and I placed you there. I placed you there. See, God created the most perfect angel ever and put him exactly where he wanted him. But through five I wills, he made it very clear he, he wanted a better place. He didn't like his placement. He felt he was worthy of something better. And so... I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire and he was dissatisfied every step of the way. 
You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Again, that's backwards. You and I aren't like that. You and I are born in Adam completely unrighteous until Jesus Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account when we get saved. This, this creature went the other direction. He was created righteous but then fell until unrighteousness was found in you. How did that happen? Did God create that unrighteousness? Did God make him sin? How did that happen? No, God created a volitional being who made choices and consequence of those choices evil was generated by the unrighteousness by the abundance of your trade you were internally filled with violence and you sinned god didn't create that but in the exercise of his satanic volition of his free freely created volition halal ben shakar or what he's called here what's the name here tocheth uh, I haven't memorized this one as well. Um, got a different name here. He was internally filled with violence and he sinned. Lucifer sins. Satan sins right here. And it happened because of his pride by the abundance of his trade. It says in verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. By reason of your splendor. Satan failed the prosperity test. Just like Solomon, just like all of us. Okay? Well, not me, of course. I, I keep tempting the Lord. Lord, I'm going to pass that prosperity test. Oh. Yeah, I dare you, Lord. <laughs> I double dare you. You see, God knows better. I'm the prosperous guy on the planet anyway. Um, but here he is, and he fails it. Heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Okay? And I almost want to come along like the Lord and asking Adam, who told you you were naked? I would want to come along and say, who told you you were beautiful? And why do you care? And who's telling you that? Are you telling yourself that? Did somebody else tell you that? There's no girl angels anyway. Why, why are you telling yourself that you're so beautiful? And then your wisdom? It's not wisdom anymore. It's corrupted. It's corrupted. He's still genius IQ. I mean, he's still just off the charts brilliant, but he's insane. How many, we, we learn about this all the time. How many of our serial killer psychopaths are some of the most genius mentalities, and yet they're twisted and perverted, and, and, and it's interesting to me. Anyway, so I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I've destroyed you a covering, covering cherub. I've cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Now this is interesting too because this describes why humanity is here to observe and why angels are here to observe and why does humanity resolve the, angel the angelic conflict this way? By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. And when you go through those stones, you learn that Satan was a high priest. Those stones match the, the high priest effort of, of Aaron. All right, you, you see that he has a priestly function. The dragon is the Levi dragon. The, the Leviathan is Levi Tanin, the Levitical dragon. And he's a priest in his role, but he doesn't like it. He doesn't like his Messiah function. And then he starts getting rich. He starts making money off the sanctuaries. He finds out that this temple can be profitable. He finds out that he can start making, uh, making angelic loot left and right. And so, as we read it in verse 18, 
He profaned his sanctuaries by the unrighteousness of his trade. You know, Satan was the first money changer in the first temple. You ever think about that? You ever wonder why it was that Jesus goes so berserk when he sees it on, in Jerusalem? I mean, it's kind of out of character for Jesus. He doesn't make whips of cords and start flipping over tables in most of the gospel stories. But boy, he did twice he did in that temple. Twice he just lost it, we, we say. Okay? He never sinned, he wasn't carnal. But there was twice in, in Jesus Christ's righteous indignation, he is flipping tables and he's scourging humans and he's, he's demanding, he says, stop making my father's house a robber's den. Because I, I think it goes back to this. He remembers this. The God-man was there to see this. Okay? And uh, there it is. So, the angelic world and the angelic fall. There's more to it. There's the tohu wabohu judgment of Jeremiah 4 uh, that goes well with Genesis 1-2. And then, of course, now today, the rulers and authorities are invisible in the church age. 1 Corinthians 2 verses 6 through 8. And I'm going to have to close with this because uh, I just saw the clock. Go, oh my goodness. I thought we were further than this. Because we got the days of man, the days of Israel, the present evil age in the church, the world to come. So we'll do all that next week. Um, but I want to look at this. 1 Corinthians 2. You know, Hebrews 1 is so powerful. It talks about God spoke, now He spoke, He spoke to us. Long ago, in many portions, many ways, He spoke to the fathers, to the patriarchs, through the prophets. But in these last days, He spoke to us in His Son. And we have the fullness of the Father in the Son. We have the fullness of His message. We have the the, the whole picture. We should not be ignorant of these things. The angels were ignorant. The angels were ignorant. And had they known what we know, they wouldn't have done what they did. You ever think about that? So 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6 says, We do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age. So we speak a wisdom among those who are mature. The church age is the mature age compared to Israel, compared to the Gentiles, compared to the angels. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. The rulers of this age. And here's the invisible realm. Now, they're no longer visible. It's no longer their realm. But they're still called rulers. Principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities. There's a reason for that. They don't get subjected until the fullness of time. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages, not to the angels' glory, to our glory. Church, Bride of Christ, recipients of 1 Corinthians. Notice, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. (laughs) Things into which angels long to look. As genius as they are, and they can read the Bible for themselves, but without a living human spirit, how do they digest the spiritual truth? The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The cross was a mistake, and they didn't know it till it was done. They, they thought it was their victory. They crucified Jesus, and He disarmed them. Isn't that beautiful? He's the only king who had to die 
for his kingdom to begin. Right? It's a song. I'm quoting gospel song lyrics now. The only king who had to die for his kingdom to begin. The only king who ever surrendered to win. He's the only king every other king will bow before and sing. I'm going to play that on my drive home. It's a fun song. All right. So um, the world that was, the angelic world, and the, the, the rulers of that world, they're still around today watching us. The rulers of the, of the world are still watching us because it's in us now that the grace is manifest. It's in us the manifold wisdom and grace of God is on display. All right. Through whom also he made the ages. Father, I thank you for this truth. I pray, Father, that you would expand our capacity. Help us to think in bigger uh, capacities, in bigger ways, larger ways. Uh, we tend to think small. We tend to think, well, we tend to, we tend to think about us. We're selfish and, and we look at us. But uh, we're supposed to fix our eyes on Christ. And your plan is centered in Christ. So I pray that we would fix our eyes where you've got your eyes fixed that we would be on board with your plan and program, that we would become your fellow workers in glorifying your beloved Son. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.